Good morning to each of you. Um, we are should be getting a handout, and then on for those who are on the live stream, you should also have access to one there as well, a, a digital um, copy. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 12 this morning, Romans chapter 12, uh, where we're continuing our study in Romans. Just want to thank all who served for us in music this morning. I sure appreciate it, um, and uh, I know as a congregation we appreciate it. Also, realize that doesn't just happen overnight; that that uh, takes uh, work ahead of time, and we certainly appreciate your dedication in that. Well, let me go ahead and read for us out of Romans chapter twelve. Uh, verses 3 through 8, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, the title of the sermon, hopefully you'll understand it by the end, is, so where's the midnight buffet? Uh, verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service and our serving, the one who teaches and is teaching, the one who exhorts and his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. God bless the reading of his word. Let's offer a prayer of help to God together. Father God, we come to you and we collectively reject the idea that our existence is owed to happenstance in billions of years. We affirm together that we believe what your word tells us, that our creation happened because you spoke words and we were created we come as the church of Jesus Christ and therefore we have a collective witness together that your spirit spoke words and opened our eyes to our sin and impending doom and saved us unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we who were created by your word were made alive again by your word. And so, Father, we come now as your people wanting to be fed by your word. We pray that you will make us a church centered around your word. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see the incredible beauty of the church. We are not a political action 
group. We are not a place for entertainment. We are not a place for social gathering. We are made to be the visible manifestation of Jesus. And so, Father, I pray through the preaching of your word that you would give all glory to Christ, that he will grow us. And Father, I pray this morning for those who are listening, I pray that you'll help us to see what joy there is in rolling up our sleeves, coming and belonging together, serving our Lord Jesus in the church. Father, do what you will. By your spirit, we pray these things. Through the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So about a month ago or so, I had the privilege of preaching um, a sermon here on an overview of the first 10 chapters of Romans. And there we discussed an analogy, if you remember, about boats. Um, and we said that there were a bunch of boats facing an impending storm in which no one would be able to survive. If you recall, we pictured each human as representing a boat, and we considered the wrath of God against human sin as the impending, surely tragic storm. And there we summarized or attempted to summarize Paul's argument for the first 10 chapters of Romans to be that, one, because of our sin, each of us would surely face the judgment of God. Because of our sin, each of us would surely face the judgment of God. And we said there are no privileged boats that are strong enough to withstand God's wrath. That is no person because of his race or because of his bloodline, because of the good deeds he's done or lack of bad deeds, would be able to survive God's judgment. And then we said that Paul clearly offers us incredibly good news in the opening chapters of Romans when he says there in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Summarized, Paul says the gospel is the incredible news that we can be saved from the impending doom of God's judgment by surrendering our cause, our lives, to the person and work of Jesus. If we stop trying to own our ship and surrender our ship to Jesus, then we can be saved. The flag of our individual ownership comes down. And the flag of Jesus' ownership of us, our vessel, goes up. And this flag ceremony, if you will, the surrendering ceremony, that's Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's read it together. This is a surrendering ceremony. This is my flag goes down, Jesus. Your flag goes up. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. That therefore is the entire summary we just said. Given all that, brothers, 
I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Take your flag down. That's what this is saying. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't try to keep your flag going the way it used to, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is, take your flag and go elsewhere. That by the testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. This is the surrendering of our flag, surrendering control of our lives. But now, we shall see in the passage before us today that we don't simply take down our flag and put up the flag of Jesus. No, I hope you'll see this proved in the text today. We actually surrender our vessel. We disembark our ship and we board the ship of Jesus. And the ship of Jesus is the local church. This passage before us effectively destroys the myth that Christians are each driving their own boat. That is a sad, prevalent myth that many believe who call themselves Christians. Many believe that they can just exist on their own and do their own thing all the while connected to Jesus. They believe that at some point, they had their own private flag ceremony where they added the flag of Jesus to their boat. And now it's just them and Jesus on Rambo-like missions, if any mission at all. But Romans 12 is here to dislodge us of that false notion. It is my prayer today that we will see all Christians Surrender their own vessel and come on board the vessel of God's people. That is, the flag of Jesus is not ever flown on a jet ski. It's always flown on the ship of the local church. And so there's something else that I want you to see. While the flag of Jesus is only flown on common vessels, the common vessels, well, they're not cruise ships, they're battleships. Now, I've never been in the Navy. I have toured, though, some aircraft carriers and some battleships, and that's awesome. They're incredible. But one of the things that blows my mind, the thing that every single time I'm amazed at, it's not the guns, it's not the incredible navigation things, it's always the same thing. It's that that entire vessel is built for work. Everything is about people's job. Everybody's got a job. Like I've been usually most amazed by the kitchen. But you stop and think about it. you got to feed a bunch of young men primarily in between the ages of, say, 20 and mid-30s, most of them. Yeah, that kitchen's got to work. It's built for work. 
Now, I've had the pleasure of being on a cruise ship. A cruise ship, it's built for relaxation, overeating, and entertainment. That's it. In fact, on a cruise ship, they spend a lot of effort hiding all the parts of the ship that are actually related to work. Yeah, there's a big staff, and they do a lot of work, but what do they spend a lot of time and energy doing? Intentionally doing all of that behind the scenes as is to highlight relaxation and enjoyment of their customers. Now, friends, you tell me, of those two analogies, which do most American churches seem to be following? Do we look more like rugged vessels built for enlisted men to carry out all their different common duties? Or do we look more like vessels trying to highlight the entertainment, the relaxation, and the comfort, while all the while trying to downplay the few number of passengers doing all the work? Romans 12 makes it plain that Christians must be joined to churches and that churches must be vessels built for service, for work, for the battle of the kingdom. No spectating, no pure relaxing. Maybe more aptly put, this church, this battleship has no midnight buffet. All right. Well, the good news is I just gave you the entire sermon. Uh, that's the conclusion. Um, sometimes you start with the conclusion and I just did. Um, the conclusion is the following. If you are a Christian, you will be connected to a church. Those connected to a church have been gifted by God to work in the church. Now, my job as a preacher and you better. This is your job as a listener. You have a job every time you listen to a sermon. Your job as you listen to a sermon is to say, okay, Mr. Preacher, you show me from the word what is coming out of your mouth and I will call it the word of God. But it's got to come what? From the word. So I have a job right now. I just gave you two conclusions. Always be nervous when the preacher gives you his conclusions before he goes to the text. Make that your job. Be nervous. So my job, I just gave you two conclusions. My job is to tell you from the text, where do I get those? And that's what the rest of the time that we spent. In verses 3 through 5 of chapter 12, we shall see that Christians belong to a church. In verses 6 through 8, we shall see that Christians use their spirit-wrought gifts to serve in a church. There are no churchless Christians. There are no non-ministering Christians. Let's begin with verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul starts by using himself as an example. He says that he has been given grace by God. He, is, he has been given a gift by God. He's using it to address believers. He's just setting an example. Here, I'm getting ready to use my gift to tell you to use your gift. He is working. He's doing his part. 
Then he intentionally uses this word think or mind, however you want to translate it, over and over and over. Um, the actual strict way of translating it would be something like do not, or first it would start with to everyone, pantas, to everyone. Do not think more of yourself than you ought to think, but think with right thinking. Um, so you got the think part there, right? So he wants us to think rightly about ourselves. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to think rightly about ourselves. Well, this is true in general. He means something in particular, and you catch that in verses four to five. We're going to return to verse three, but verses four to five are connected there. Verse four, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. Verse five, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Notice that verse four begins with the word four, different than the number four, linking it to verse three. So it starts for this, that is because of what I've said in verse three, Paul has given us an argument as to why we should think soberly about ourselves. Why should we think soberly about ourselves? Our thinking must be right thinking that leads us to be connected to a church. A church, Paul says, like a human body has members. It doesn't take much understand that your human body has various members and each member has a different function. Your legs, they provide stability and mobility. Your feet support your legs. Your ears let you hear. Your eyes allow you to see. Paul is saying that we are a body with different members. And each of the different members has a different function. But this body of members is identified with Christ, please catch how crucial this is to his argument. It is massive to understanding the New Testament, and it is often wholly misunderstood by many today. When you surrender your life to Christ, you must be connected to Christ. But the local church serves the function of being the visible manifestation of Jesus himself until he returns. Christ Jesus identifies with his people. Paul gets this. You know why? That's the very first thing Jesus taught him about himself. The very first thing that Jesus ever taught Paul about Jesus is that Jesus identifies with his people. Acts chapter 9. Paul on his road on the road to Damascus, his conversion. Verse one, but Paul, but Saul, almost already got him to Paul. At this point, he's still Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That trips me out. If you've been reading the Bible long, that won't trip you out because you're so used to it. But it should trip us out every time. This is the greatest Preacher, evangelist of all Christendom ever. Listen how his journey starts. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the followers of the Lord Jesus. Unreal. He went to the high priest 
And he asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to them, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Paul was threatening and actively persecuting the followers of Jesus. And notice how they're described. They are those that are following the way, part of the way. No, they are those that belong to the way. They belonged. They belonged to Jesus. And they belonged to one another. And then notice this. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Poor Saul, he's so confused. He says, who are you? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So here's the question. How in the world can Saul, even as active and zealous as a young man he was, how is he persecuting the Lord Jesus if the Lord Jesus has already ascended to heaven? There's only one way to connect those two things. The only possible way that you connect that is that the Lord Jesus connects himself to his people, to the church, so much so that he says, if you're persecuting them, then you're persecuting me. I, I am represented by the people of God. Friends, if we love Jesus, then we will love his church. If we have sacrificed ourselves to Jesus, we will sacrifice ourselves to his church. Christians are members of churches. They belong to churches. That's the language straight from Acts 9. They belong. We belong to Jesus by belonging to one another. My body is Tim's body. My ears belong to Tim. My feet, they belong to Tim. My nose belongs to Tim. The hairs on my head belong to Tim. Though his age continues, I'm having to convince them that they still belong to Tim. But members are members of one another. What if my arm said to my ear, you know what? I'm just tired of it. I'm not listening to you anymore. I will only listen to Tim. My ears are going to say back what? I'm Tim's ear. That doesn't make any sense. I belong to Tim. You belong to Tim. We belong to Jesus. And as we belong to Jesus, we belong to one another. Now we get back around to understand verse 3. Paul is telling us in verse 3 to rightly think about ourselves so that we will belong to one another 
and play whatever role is necessary. It seems hard to imagine a more obvious example of someone thinking too highly of themselves. The very thing Paul tells us not to do than for a person to insist on going their own way and refusing to belong to a church. Hence, we submit ourselves to God as described in verses one and two by submitting ourselves to one another. That is Christian logic. Second Corinthians. Paul there commends the Macedonian believers who were going through amazing trials. They're incredibly, incredibly poor. They give an offering out of their poverty. And he summarizes all their love and care there. In chapter 8, he says this, chapter 8, verse 5, 2 Corinthians 8, 5, in this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That's how Christian logic works. You go to the Lord Jesus and say, I love you. I will give myself to you. And the Lord Jesus says, well, let me tell you what I want you to do. Go give to my people. That's exactly what that verse says. The will of God. That's what I want. That's what God wants. That's what it means to have a will. It means to have a want. This is Romans 12, 1 through 5. First, we give ourselves to the Lord. I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Second, in so doing, we give ourselves to one another. So we are one body in Christ, members of one another. But there's another statement there in verse 3 that I just skipped right over. I want you to see it. It's the last part of verse 3. He says, we are to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure that God has assigned. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What does Paul mean when he talks about faith being assigned? How do you assign faith? I thought faith is something you have. Who's assigning faith? Chapter 2. Written by Paul of Ephesians, what does he say? Paul begins the chapter by first describing us as dead in our trespasses and sins. You're out, you're toast, your sins have left you dead. And then he says that by God's grace, we have been saved. And listen to what he says, verse 8. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So faith is not your own doing. It is what? It's a sign as a gift from God. My friend, if you're here and you look upon Jesus Christ and in any way look to him as a sufficient savior, let me proclaim to you by the word of God, God has a sign you faith. Praise God he opens your eyes. That's faith. So this is a normal Christian experience. We can summarize it like this. God awakens us to the storm of his forthcoming judgment over our sin by giving us the gift of faith to see our need of help. That's the first thing that faith does is it awakens you up and you look around you and go, Oh, no. If I'm judged by God right now, I'm in big trouble. Then we repent. 
We turn. We trust in Jesus. And we sacrifice ourselves to him. And then he says that same measure of faith, the one that awakened us to the storm, the one that helped us embrace Jesus, that same measure of faith causes us to rightly see ourselves and gives us the desire to go connect and belong to the church. In other words, churches should be filled with humble people who don't view themselves highly, given that all of us had to be awakened to the storm of God over our sin, but instead realized we were dead in our trespasses. And that is why verse 3 starts with the word for as well. It's connecting itself back to verses 1 and 2. As we sacrifice ourselves to God, we naturally give ourselves to the people of God. Hence point 1, Christians belong to churches. We're connected to churches. Then Christians serve in a church. Now you get the central command of the whole section. It's given in verse 6. Paul, what are you telling me to do? Just tell me what you want me to do. Here it is. Having gifts that differ according to the grace, verse 6, let us use them. Here we are commanded to use our gifts. We are to use gifts to serve the body. Paul says it's a known fact that every one of us has been given gifts. They're different gifts, but they're each made for the body, and you and I are commanded, use them. Let's make sure we keep this in the right perspective on these gifts. As we use phrases often, we use phrases like, you have a gift, or man, he is really gifted. And we often refer that to people with have above average talents. We use that both in the church and outside of the church. That's not just a church phrase. Man, that person's really gifted. We say that outside the church. Someone plays some really good music, has a really good sports uh, uh, gift. We say, man, they're really gifted. Well, don't bring that import into this text because it doesn't naturally fit. I think by doing that, we leave people frustrated and idle. Let me give you a better understanding, I think. Imagine for a second that our country has found itself in the throes of a major conflict. We have been attacked and the generals have called for us volunteers to join up. Don't. This is my analogy so we can play with it. Everybody in the room, all of us together, we are all gung-ho and we can all pass the test. Let's just pretend. Um, so we're all in, right? So now all of us, we sign up. We're all rushing to duty together. We're right there. And we all get assigned to be together. Oh, that's great. Here we go. We're zealous. We're going to protect our nation. We're going to show them. And now we find out what our assignment is. And you know what? We've been assigned to a nuclear submarine. I think our situation just went from excited to bad. I'm going to guess that none of us has a clue how to operate a nuclear submarine. It's just us. Go get a boys. Here's your nuclear submarine. Oh, my. Right? We can be zealous to hell. We're brave. We're committed. But we're useless. We don't have a clue what to do. What are we doing on board of a nuclear submarine? And what's to our surprise? Somebody raises their hand and says, 
you know what? I'm just going to go give that periscope a try. I figure somebody's got to use it. She goes over the periscope, and much to her surprise, and our surprise, she knows how to use the darn thing. She's using it. Then someone says, you know what? I think I'm going to check out the, the ventilation system. Poor fella, he reads night and day. And within just a few days, this guy's mastered the ventilation system. He knows how to get us air. He laughs and he says, I, I can't even use my thermostat back then. Can't, can't program it for him. Another goes toward the kitchen. He starts reading about recipes. And before you know it, he's happily making food and washing dishes. He says, I don't even unload the dishwasher at home. Another fuse, they start learning how to drive. Another says, you know what? Might as well learn about the missile system. And he jumps in and he knows about the missile system. Before you know it, us, bunch of ragtag nobodies. We're operating a nuclear submarine. Now you say, now Tim, let's just be honest. Your analogy, we get it, but it's a little bit far-fetched. I argue nay. My analogy is not nearly far-fetched enough. The idea that a bunch of lost, broken, dead in your trespasses is the diagnosis. Sinners are put in charge of a church? Oh, that's much more far-fetched. The church is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. What would be crazier than handing that duty, that responsibility to us? We shouldn't think of our gifts in terms of what talents we may have that are exemplary. We should trust God. He'll do something supernatural. He'll make it so we can serve. He'll make it so we'll be effective. I don't think we need a long list analyzing what our gifts are and are not. It's just confusing. I think instead what we need is a heart changed by God for helping. You just look around. Huh. Got no clue. Happy to help. Whatever we do, we should believe the word of God. We, let me say it again. We have been gifted by God to work in his church. So starting at the end of verse six and proceeding through the end of verse eight, Paul starts giving us some examples like here's a guy on the periscope. There's a guy with the ventilation system. Oh. Here he goes. You can go figure out driving. That's pretty much what he's doing right here. That's the rest of this. And every time, I want you to watch this. It's just such an effective literary tool. He says, periscope, use it. Ventilation, use it. Missiles, use them. That's all he's doing. He's going to call out a gift and say, now do it. A couple things. First, realize these are only examples. This is not intended to be an exhaustive list. So it's not helpful for you to look through this list and go, me, not me, me, not me. Don't do that. These are just examples. Surely there are other things in here. I will also say, while these are just examples, it's also a really good list. It's very exhaustive. Third, 
please realize Paul mentions two types of gifts, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Those are the main gifts of the church, speaking gifts and serving gifts. There actually are three types of gifts mentioned in the New Testament. Only two types are mentioned here, speaking and serving. There's a third type, and that's known as sign gifts. Now, I follow John Calvin, 16th century great pastor, theologian, Bible commentator, when he says that the sign gifts were never intended outside the context of the early New Testament church. So I'm going to give you a very brief argument for that. It's going to be brief. If you are really into this and want to talk more, sure, I'd love to talk to you. But I think it needs to be covered quickly. So let me just tell you real quick what we're diving into, and then we'll come right back up. Why are the sign gifts that are often talked about and become much confusing, why do I and John Calvin believe that those are actually only used for very specific time in the early, early, early church? Here's why. The sign gifts are mentioned only in 1 Corinthians, which is the earliest mention of any of the gifts. In chapter 12, we get a list of the gifts, and many of those are sign gifts. But in any, every other place in the scriptures where the gifts are mentioned, no sign gifts mentioned. None in Romans 12, none in Ephesians 4, none in 1 Peter 4. All of those come after 1 Corinthians, and only in 1 Corinthians are mentioned. It appears that the miraculous gifts were used. Why? Why did God give these? He gave those to authenticate the apostles and that the, and these sign gifts help do that. Paul explains this in his second letter to the Corinthians, which was written even years before Romans. Here's what he says. I think this is such a helpful verse. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Here he seems to mention the sign gifts were given to show the true apostles. But by the time he writes Romans, no longer do we get any sign gifts. You only get service gifts and speaking gifts. Finally, by the time we get to 1 Peter 4, which is the last passage written, so it's written about 12 years after 1 Corinthians. By the time we get there, Peter just summarizes this so well for us when he talks about gifts. He says this in verses 10 through 11. No mention of sign gifts at all. Listen to what he says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it seems that you can understand the gifts available to the church is coming down to gifts of speaking and serving. I will also tell you, there's disagreement among Christians about this. There are some places that we cannot agree together and still worship together in a church. This is not one of them. I definitely think as a church, we could even disagree about how to understand this together. Um, but I think if you're asking me what I believe, I will tell you, I don't think sign gifts are part of the church today. I think they were there to authenticate the New Testament. And that's why we only see them mentioned in the earliest mention in 1 Corinthians. And by the time we even get to Romans, they're not mentioned. By the time we get to 1 Peter, it's done.
Um, so all the way back to Romans, we have gifts of speaking and gifts of serving. Here, Paul mentions three types of speaking gifts. The first is prophecy. Please, when you think of prophecy, I don't think there's any reason to think of somebody telling you the future. That's not what's going on here. In fact, you can trace this. I'm not going to do it, I promise. But you can trace this all the way through the New Testament uses of prophecy. It's not used that way. Instead, it is talked about in proclaiming the word of God. Even when the proclamation of the word of God is about something in the future, the emphasis is not the future. The emphasis is the proclamation of the word of God. Hence, Paul says that it should be done in proportion to faith. It is the gift of getting up in front of a group of people and proclaiming the word of God. And it should be done in proportion to faith. Not only should the point of the sermon be the point of the passage from Scripture, but it should accord with all the rest of the faith as handed down to the saints. And the prophet who's proclaiming, the person who's preaching, should have a genuine belief himself in these things. I got to tell you, I pray that if you've spent any time in this congregation, I pray that we have put a burden around your neck that you'll carry all the way to when you see the Lord Jesus. And that is this. I pray you'll never, ever be able to sit in a pew and hear somebody give you a sermon and they try to give you a sermon and they don't tell you where it's coming from in the Bible. I pray that as soon as they start to just make you feel good or talk about whatever, you will think to yourself, uh-uh, you got to do your job. The job of a person, a man in the pulpit, is to explain the word of God. Not to itch our ears, not to make us happy, but explain to me the Bible, please. I beg that you will never, ever be able to sit in a congregation for the rest of your life that doesn't explain the Bible to you. That's what prophecy is. It's simply proclaiming God's word to God's people. Then he mentions the gift of teaching in verse 7. What's the difference between teaching and prophecy? Well, it appears that teaching is less about public proclamation than it is about just systematic instruction in the faith. This could take the form of one-on-one discipleship or a lesson in a classroom. I think the most strategic and important teaching ministry in the church is actually probably music. That's where heresy always comes in first, is in music. So thankful for the work that Brother Mark does to watch our music. He's guarding the church. Music is how you learn. Tim, music, no, I don't learn that way. Really? A, B, C, D, E. Let me try it again. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You are trying to not sing with me right now, right? H, I, J. Why did your teachers teach it to you like that? Because you have never forgotten. 
That's what's so awesome about music. It's a joy. It gets in here and it doesn't go out. Thank you for the teaching. I mean, incredible teaching you do to us week and week. Amy, thank you. The number of times you have practiced at your house on the piano. Why? So we learn. So that we have things to say together. Thank you. That's teaching. It's using an incredible gift. Finally, he mentions a gift of exhortation. This is a gift of taking scripture and applying it to a situation. It's often encouragement or correction. It's the ability to speak into the lives of others with wisdom and grace, armed with the truth of scripture. Then Paul mentions the serving gifts of general service, of giving or contributing, and leading and showing mercy. Friends, these make up incredibly important parts of the church. I think of a number of people I've seen with the gift of mercy. You have the ability by God to sense others' needs. You write a card. You make a call. You offer a word of encouragement. You shouldn't do that on your own. Praise be to God. He's taught you how to use your periscope. Or consider those of you who have the gift of contribution. You contribute so much of your time and talents to help keep the toilets working. You don't think that matters? Let it not work, right? You, you're crawling under our building so we have HVAC. You're working to keep the weeds trimmed, making it where the sound is going out. You are probably amazed at times yourself that you would give so much time and energy with nothing in return. You're about as surprised as the lady in our story who grabbed the hold of a periscope and can use it. Who knew? It's faith. God is awakening. Some have the ability to lead and organize. The general ability, general ability to get things done. Friends, this is life in the body of Christ. We should all be amazed by what God is doing through us. And as we do, remain humble and available. So I consider this passage, I couldn't help but think of saints who've gone before us. Who served this church. I couldn't help but think of names like Sister Lamona Mahaffey, who served me and so many other children for years. Or Floyd Angel, who helped build so many pieces of our church, served as an encourager, just a constant presence to us. Or Sister Barbara Almond, who so faithfully served organizing our church office, our finances, never Complaining. Sister Dolores Roy, who served in so many different ways, leading, showing mercy, cooking, cleaning. And that's just a few. You see, these are beautiful parts of the body of Christ. Serving Jesus by serving his church. And you know what's the sweetest thing about their service? When that moment came that they went home to go to the Lord, 
I'm just thinking of those four saints right there. Nobody wonder about the status of their soul. You know why? Because we saw their service. We knew that they belonged to Jesus. We saw the way they served. Can you imagine asking a World War II veteran if he enjoyed the midnight buffet on the ship each night? I got to imagine he's going to probably want to throw you overboard for such a ridiculous question. But ask him if he's proud of his service, proud of his country. When I think of sisters Lamona and Dolores, Barbara and Brother Floyd, I'm certain that each of them would tell you that their service to their church was better than any choice midnight buffet or any cruise ship could ever offer. May God bless us with grace and faith to surrender our lives to him and in so doing, surrender our lives to one another. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your great kindness to us. Thank you for the patience of these listeners. Thank you for this word. Father, we pray that you would use this for the betterment of your church. And we pray that the name of Jesus would be loved, treasured, and exalted. That all glory would be given to Christ because of the way that we love one another. We ask all these things to you, Father, through the name of Jesus Christ, our King. And we pray that your spirit would bring these about. He would grow his church. Amen. Thank you, Tim. Um, I was thinking I'm, I need to talk to pastor about joining the church. But I remembered I, I'm already a member. So uh, thank you, Tim, for the message. And you did well. He did give us the conclusion first and said it was going to be up to him to provide adequate scriptural support for what he said. I think you succeeded, sir. Uh, hopefully we as hearers of the word were able to hear and that we will obey. I want to give the men in the, up top an opportunity to bring the last verse of All I Have is Christ. As we close the service, we're going to sing this. Again, it helps us to sing what we're teaching ourselves and others. And we're going to sing to the Lord. Now, Lord, I give my life. It would be yours alone. And live through all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come for me. The faith to understand those commands could never come for me. It's grace. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be my only boast is you. These are dangerous words. And before we stand and sing them, I would like for you to prayerfully consider them. If we're going to speak to the one who has given his life for us, to say, now, Lord, here's my life. Take it. You've ransomed it. Now use it for whatever you choose. It's serious. Church membership can be fun. It will be 